You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. All the organisers of this wonderful conference and thanks above all to the staff of Trinity Library past and present who have taken such care of these treasures which fascinate us all so much. When Kolker um, published his catalogue of TCD Library's Latin manuscripts in 1991, uh, one reviewer at least noted the special attention he had given to uh, 667, once known as F53. His description of it there runs to some 41 pages, and he identifies in it no fewer than 356 textual units in that manuscript. So the older catalogue had identified 13 texts, so quite a change there. Some of the texts are reasonably substantial, like the Manual of Basic Theology that it opens with, the Eleutidarium of Honorius of Autun, and if you find it on uh, the, the website, it'll say Honorius of Autun, etc., and you can see that etc. covers, covers a multitude. Um, that work takes up 32 pages, but many of the texts in this manuscript are very brief excerpts from various works. Uh, so these texts are incredibly diverse in nature. You have a poem about cheese, you have little sets of annals, themed lists of quotations um, from philosophers and theologians like Aristotle, Seneca, Moses Maimonides, Richard Rowell, Henry Suzo. There are ghost stories, stories about burning vellum, enough to terrify any librarian, stories about people who make pacts with the devil, notes on liturgy and canon law and grammar, riddles, rhymes and bits of basic calendrical science. Now, prompted by the title of this conference, I'm going to be considering how this book might have been intended to change the lives of its contemporaries and what its zone of influence might actually have been. So, to take two examples, a book of hours for the personal use of one careful owner might have had a very limited zone of influence, perhaps very deep, but, but limited. Whereas a book of medieval recipes used by a busy urban medical practitioner might have a greatly extended uh, zone of influence. So on that spectrum, where should we situate TCD 667? That's the question I hope to begin at least to answer. Now I'm aware that might be a slightly nebulous idea for a conference of hard-nosed manuscript scholars. And there are, of course, many more straightforward questions we might profitably ask about this book. Questions like... What language are the texts written in? That's an easy enough one. The vast majority of its texts are in Latin, but there is one tiny bit of English, which I'll come back to. And from the top of page 165 to the middle of column A on page 181 is a series of texts written in Irish. These texts are not described in Calker's catalogue, but they are described in Abbott and Gwynne's 1921 catalogue. The Irish language material here, incidentally, it seems to have been catalogued under a different number, so you'll find it referred to as Manuscript 1699, even though this section is in no way extrinsic to the book. Notice, by the way, that the script changes uh, matching the, the language change, and notice, too, the use, um, apparently unique in Irish manuscripts, of English-style initials together with Gaelic script. So if you study a lot of Irish language manuscripts, this combination, it looks, just trippy is the only word for it, I mean, it looks deeply strange. Um, Alan Fletcher has written about the significance of that decoration here. Um, but apart from this dedicated Irish language section, there are snippets of Irish in some marginal notes too, and in this short set of annals we find on column A of page 66. Uh, so it's a mix of, of Latin and Irish. Um, that chronicle is very helpfully dated. Uh, at the top it tells us the date of writing, the year of writing, 1455, which helps us answer another important question. When roughly was the manuscript written? 
This same chronicle, uh, with its special interest in mendicant friars and members of the O'Brien family, is one of the pieces of inter internal evidence that helps us figure out where the book was written and used. I won't go into that question in detail now, but I have a forthcoming article, and uh, thanks to uh, Estelle and Claire also, a two-part blog post on the TCD Research Collections blog about this very question. I found very clear evidence in the manuscript that it belonged not to Franciscan friars, as had been thought for about 100 years, ever since uh, Robin Flower, but that it belonged to Dominican friars. There may have been some motivated reasoning there, but it, nevertheless, it seems to be uh, well accepted by scholars who work on the manuscript. I argued as also that, including all the, the um, internal evidence, that this manuscript ought to be associated with the Dominican Priory of St. Saviour in the town of Limerick which would, I think, make the Irish language writing here the oldest surviving examples of Irish written in an urban context and written from within a, an, an English-speaking um, part of Ireland. Um, so TCD 667 is a mid-15th century eclectic uh, trilingual book belonging to Dominican friars in Limerick. This context actually helps us greatly to understand the purpose of this book's compilation and helps us to discern some coherence in this great diversity of texts. How so? Well, Dominican priories were not just places of prayer, they were generally places of learning as well. So each priory had a lector who was responsible for organizing the intellectual life of the community, especially the initial formation of new friars. And there are indeed a number of texts in the book which suggest that it was aimed partly at least at classroom practice. So there are some notes on the importance of study. For example, like this, uh, sorry, this model of St. Saviour's in, in medieval Limerick, there's a nice note on study, um, explaining that uh, it, is, it is licit for a cleric, uh, and the implication is that it should also be the case that a cleric studies on, on Sundays, on feast days, and writes books and reads books and so on. Um, there's also a, a note on different kinds of students, which say, uh, says that the best students should study arts, mediocre students should study law, and the weakest students engineering. So posted without comment, as they say. More certain evidence of classroom use is the fact that a good number of the short texts in the manuscript begin with the word like quero or queritor, I ask or it is asked. So we have a question here about whether eggs count as meat, which matters a great deal if you're fasting from, from meat, and, and another here about um, whether a, a priest should celebrate mass after a sleepless night. In other words, is it still the same day for him, in which case another mass would violate the one, a day, one mass a day rule. Um, so this phrasing, quero, queritor, it's found introducing the same kinds of questions in Friar's manuscripts in England, explicitly aimed at classroom discussion of canonical and, and moral questions. So there's an article on that topic here by Leonard Boyle, uh, my confrere, um, who, the 100th anniversary of whose birth took place just a few weeks ago. There was a conference uh, in his honour in Rome. But that article explains a lot of the kind of classroom practices that we find reflected in a manuscript like TCD 667. And it is this use, the, the training of friars in formation, which best accounts for the full range of texts in the manuscript. So such a use makes sense, for example, of the inclusion of basic texts on the calendar, on liturgical celebrations, on confessional practice. It accounts also for the excerpts from standard grammatical manuals, and even the poem on cheese. That poem is actually about um, the, kind of the medical value of cheese, that it might help with certain um, digestive conditions, let's say, if you eat cheese after a meal or before a meal and so on. It's from the Regiment Sanitatis 
um, a well-known medical um, uh, manuscript that was, or text that was well-known in medieval Ireland. Um, and it's not at all uncommon, as Colman O'Clobby pointed out in a lecture last week in Maynooth, that the books of medieval clerics should include some medical texts. You might also think of the Dublin copy of um, Piers Plowman, um, Bodleian MS Deuce uh, 104, this 15th century manuscript, which includes an illustration of a Dominican friar investigating a flask of urine, so the kind of standard um, medical activity there. There's a lot more in TCD 667, though, than just text for generic clerical formation aimed at the basics of liturgical celebration and pastoral care. To appreciate um, the, the purpose of all the texts in the manuscript, it's vital to recall that medieval friars were not just generic clerics. They were, ideally at least, and very often in practice, professional communicators. The various movements of friars were, in the words of Nicole Berriou, networks of mass communication, with highly theorized communication strategies right from the origins. The rise of the friars in the 13, early 13th century is simultaneous with, and closely related to, the rise of a new style of preaching known as the Sermo Modernus, a highly structured discourse based around one short biblical passage, the Thema, um, and branching out in a series of distinciones from that Thema, like a tree branching out from the trunk. And each of these distinciones is typically, according to this method, they're meant to be illustrated by means of quotations from patristic authorities, or even better, uh, illustrated by means of exempla, short, vivid, memorable anecdotes. So these sermons were told by contemporary preaching manuals, were designed to communicate not only what to believe, but also what to do, what not to do, what to fear, and what to hope for. The basic message of a friar's sermon, according to these works, uh, was that of Rilke's statue, you must change your life. And such change was effected in the hearers, above all by engaging with their memory and emotions. And again, medieval sources are explicit on this point. A sermon must be memorable if it is to achieve its effect, and it ought to be emotive to some degree at least. That's one reason uh, the use of narratives, of brief narratives in sermons was recommended. A story that produced emotions of fear, hope, disgust, wonder in the hearer is more likely, they thought, to lead to lasting change. So you can imagine, let's say you have a, a text on wisdom um, to preach about, and you, you pick your one verse, um, and you want to branch it off then into a series of sections, say a number of kinds of wisdom, or a, num a number of uh, various grades of wisdom, with each section then incorporating some provocative anecdote. And to make this sermon really memorable, you might make sure that the, the, the distinctio providing this structure is announced in a little rhyming or alliterating jingle. So in order to aid the production of such sermons, the friars produced a whole range of ancillary professional literature. Huge collections of exempla, the largest I know had 1,300 stories in it by Stephen of Bourbon. Florilegia of quotations, often arranged by theme. Manuals for the construction of sermons, artes predicandi, and so on. And it's this genre of literature that the compilers of TCD 667 are constantly drawing on. And recognizing this helps us to appreciate the purpose of the book. Not just the training of friars, as I said, in the basic tasks of liturgy and pastoral care, but their training as communicators, as preachers, capable of constructing sermons, sermones moderni, in English, Irish, and perhaps Latin too, to a clerical audience, in the town of Limerick and in its hinterland. Sermons that were to be emotive and memorable, sermons aimed at changing the lives of their hearers. Incidentally, this uh, TCD Library is home to other Irish manuscripts rich in the pastoralia associated with friars, 
250, uh, 347 and, and 65, for example. They're associated with the Franciscans of Dublin, Multifarnham and Slane, and I've no intention of claiming any of them for the Dominicans, I promise. So if we return to the question of this book's zone of influence, it's clear now that this book is much more like a book of medical recipes than a book of private devotion. It's a professional compilation which achieved its goal not in personal reading, but in the event of preaching, an event which was, of course, constantly repeated with variation in different circumstances. So th this means that this book is not just interesting as evidence of the reading of some obscure friars. No, in all its diversity, it is evidence of the kinds of ideas and images and narratives that shaped the social imaginary of Limerick in the 15th century. And more than that, since there's no reason to think that the compilers of this book were particularly eccentric in their interests, uh, they correspond very well with what friars elsewhere in Europe were doing, we can take then this book to stand for all the other books like it, the lost books, that were surely used by friars as they endeavoured to change lives around Adair, Burishul, Clare Galway, Morris, Kilmallock, Kilconnell, Waterford, Dublin, and the dozens of other locations around medieval Ireland in which friars were active. So this book then is a, is a potent resource for anyone interested in the cultural history of medieval Ireland. And I'm delighted that with the support of the Carnegie Corporation, it's now easily available for scholars anywhere to study, and just in time for the 800th anniversary of the arrival of Dominican friars in Ireland. It's next year. For my own part, in the last few years with Calker's catalogue as guide and with the help of more learned colleagues, I've just been scratching the surface of this book's contents and I'll just present a few of the uh, most interesting of these texts to you now before concluding. So I mentioned a few moments ago uh, a possible structure for a medieval sermon on the theme of wisdom. My suggested structure wasn't entirely invented. So on page 37 of our manuscript, we find a list of five kinds of wisdom and seven grades of wisdom. And the latter incorporates some simple rhyme. Interrogare humiliter, audire diligenter, credere fideliter, and so on. So to ask questions humbly, to listen carefully, to believe faithfully. And we find lots more numbered lists like this throughout the manuscript, all of which could have been used in the construction of sermons. Six functions of a church bell, eight kinds of lies, eight ways in which the word bread can be understood, the four homes, domus, of humanity from the womb to the tomb, four benefits of fasting, five effects of the mass. Now these lists are all in Latin and they might have been mnemonically useful for Latin literate friars, but what about the congregations to whom they were speaking? Some work had to be done to transform a catchy Latin jingle into a catchy English or Irish jingle. There is a sermon in this manuscript for the Feast of, of Corpus Christi which shows precisely that process. It's a sermon that is recorded in Latin and part of the sermon is constructed around a threefold distinctio concerning the Eucharist. Uh, primo est tremendum in accipiendo, secundo est necessarium in sumendo, tertio est meritorium in credendo. Note the rhyme there. That distinction is present in the, the text of the sermon, um, but it's also found um, in uh, abbreviated uh, form in the lower margin uh, of the page. And right next, and you notice the, the branching diagram, there's many of these branching diagrams um, throughout uh, the manuscript. Right next to it, uh, we find an English version uh, also rhymed. It is dreadful in taking, it is needful in receiving, it is needful to believing. There are numbered lists in the Irish section of the manuscript too, although they're already somewhat expanded rather than being found in this highly abbreviated form. Ten Wonders of the Eucharist, the Twelve Articles of the Faith, 
six ages of the world and the 12 kinds of repentance. And there's also, incidentally, uh, a text on various kinds of metre and rhyme in Irish poetry, which suggests the possibility that the friars in Limerick were being trained in poetic composition. That is a, a wonderful idea, I think, and it's not at all unlikely. Pille Bucht O'Higgin, a Franciscan friar, was actively composing bardic poetry at the time this manuscript was being written. Some other texts in the manuscript use mnemonic features other than mere numbering, like this wonderful list of biblical passages, each beginning with a syllable representing a musical note, ut, re, mi, fa, and so on. So for re, we find the passage resistite diabolo, resist the devil. For la down the bottom, la vimini et mundi estote, wash yourselves and, and make yourselves clean. So this practice of using solfege syllables to stand for the initial syllables of biblical verses in the, in the construction of a sermon, it's found in at least two other, other friars' books that I know of. And interestingly, the verses chosen are different in each case. Another text I've been looking at compares uh, Christ to each of our five digits. He is like the thumb, pollux, because he is rich in the Holy Spirit, pollet spiritu sancto. He's like the middle finger, medius, because he is the mediator, medius, between divinity and humanity, uh, and so on. Very strangely, he's like the auricularis, the little finger, which presumably was used to, to clean out the ear, because he, according to this uh, text, he entered the Blessed Virgin through her ear. Uh, so some strange ideas there. Um, there's another great uh, mnemonic technique here, again, one that is recommended in preaching manuals. Uh, it's another rhyming passage with two repeated elements, the bus and the, the tour there. And even this way of representing the, the rhyme graphically is recommended uh, in preaching manuals. So, velotin pecoribus leo dominator, nardus abori bus, princeps feribator, sic leonardus, so combining those two words, moribus sumis reputator, qui multis languoribus pie suffragator. Um, so, as the lion rules among animals and nard is the prince among plants, so Leonardus is regarded as the best with respect to morals since he prays a great deal for the souls in purgatory. Who exactly is this Leonardus? I don't know exactly. It could be St. Leonard of Noblec, whose cult is known in late medieval Ireland, but I don't think he's particularly known for prayer for the dead. Alternatively, it might be that there is a character called Leonardus in one of the exempla contained in the manuscript and that this rhyme is summarizing that exemplum. So I'll have to go searching for a Leonardus. That brings us at last to the exempla found in the manuscript, the vivid anecdotes designed for use in preaching. There are dozens of exempla in TCD 667, many of them drawn from the 13th century collection by the Dominican friar Stephen of Bourbon. They tend to occur in this manuscript in thematic groups, indicated by titles in the upper margin. So there are a series of exempla on the Blessed Virgin Mary, on penance, on prayer for the dead, and on St. Patrick's purgatory, uh, Loch Derg. The group of stories concerning the Blessed Virgin include many miracle stories which emphasize Mary's role as mother of mercy. So a hermit is tempted to sin, but is consoled and encouraged by a vision of Our Lady. A man dies and is claimed by both angels and demons as their own. But Mary appears and pronounces that he who had been devoted to her during life belongs among the good. And most touchingly, a single lily grows from the tomb of a Cistercian monk who had faithfully prayed the Ave Maria throughout his life. There's plenty of humour too, though, sometimes quite irreverent. So one of the exempla tells of the daughters of the devil. This is an exemplum that ends up being used in, in Irish manuscripts as well, um, uh, like the Liber Flavis for Gozorum and, and elsewhere. 
So the story here says that the devil has nine daughters, uh, simony, pride, lust, and so on. And he wants to marry these daughters off. So he marries simony to clerics. He marries pride to lords and so on. But then he finds he hasn't found a husband for lust. So he marries lust to the entire human race. Um, and some of the stories are very old indeed. So there's a version of the story of the sword of Damocles in this manuscript, a story which goes back to Cicero and beyond. A king's friend asks him why he never smiles, even though he's surrounded by pleasure. And so the king takes his friend, you can see it represented here, uh, places him on a throne and feeds him with all kinds of delights, but with a sword delicately swinging above his head and asks him how he's enjoying himself. And finally, one of my favourites about the burning vellum, librarians, close your ears. Um, this exemplum tells of a philosophy teacher whose deceased student appears to him wrapped in a flaming cloak of parchment covered in sophismata, the logical problems that they had been studying together. So prompted by this terrifying experience and by the suggestion that the student's over-egged attachment uh, to study might be part of the reason he's now struggling in purgatory, the teacher decides to abandon the vanities of an academic career. Incidentally, in European versions of this story, like that in Jacopo Passavanti's collection, the teacher is named Serlo, but in this manuscript, he's given an Irish name, Patrick. There are many, many more stories like these ones in TCD 667. They are at times chilling, hilarious, bizarre, picturesque, and gruesome, but they are always moving and memorable, and always aimed somehow at conversion. Now, to what extent did these texts achieve their purpose, changing the lives of men, women, and children in late medieval Limerick? It's impossible to say, although there are plenty of indications that the preaching of friars was taken seriously in Ireland at the time across ethnic and linguistic boundaries. But we do know of one character who interacted with this book and was utterly unmoved to any kind of conversion, the cheeky medieval cat who strolled with dirty paw across page 35. Thanks very much.